Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans, welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week, we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and today we have a very special guest with us. Chef Dean Fearing, known as the father of Southwestern cuisine, joins us to talk about the Dallas dining scene and tell some crazy stories. Then we'll chat about the new restaurant etiquette rules and what we eat during times of crisis. It all gets started right after this. Central Market is really into food. Like, when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. Be sure to go to dallasnews.com slash food after this for information on our show and lots of food and drink stories. And you can always share your thoughts with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking to Chef Dean Fearing. But right now, I'm joined by food writers Sarah Blaskovich and Claire Baller to talk about what's trending. So guys, I saw this story last week that I know was created specifically for the purpose of discourse. So we'll be discoursing it. So New York Magazine did this whole article on current etiquette. And I love that the headline was, do you know how to act right? (laughs) So blamey. I know it's very blamey. But I do feel like three years into the pandemic, like we've lost a lot of societal norms. So there are two sections that concern diners and going to restaurants. One is going out and staying in. Then they have a whole thing on tipping, which Claire, I think it really reflected a lot of the stuff you wrote in your tipping story. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read one that I thought was really interesting. No deciding your order at the counter. When you roll up, speak up. Yes. Um, If your burger is becoming a salad, your restaurant order modifications have gone too far. Agreed. (laughs) I read the story in part because many people on Twitter came out to say they didn't need to be told how a couple of people in New York think that the rest of us should act. So this story came to me through the negative lens of people who were hurt by it, Mm -hmm. which is always a hilarious reason to read anything because it says a lot about the people who wrote it and it says a lot about the people who tweeted about it. But one that I liked uh, was, this is not having to do with restaurants. It's number 27. It says, the proper response to being told something you already know isn't, I know. It's, (laughs) you're right. And conversationally, have we ever talked to somebody and yeah, you tell them something they know and they go, I know. And then you're like, okay. (laughs) When somebody validates you, you tell them something they already know and they say, you're right. You're like, well, yeah, I am right. It just feels nice. It's a great way to not kill a conversation. And so that one resonated with me. And um, we're also all looking for personal validation as we read this list and realize how much better we are than other people. Uh, And I will say there were a couple where I was like, yeah, I do that. And I think I do do the you're right instead of I know. So that one felt just a little little nice gold star. Yeah, I like that because we definitely get that a lot as journalists. Like you go out and about and people are like, did you hear about blah, blah, blah? It's like, yes, I work for a newspaper. 
And I yep. probably actually wrote that story. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you, Claire? The food modifications one stood out to me. I see this happen a lot where people seem to not maybe do their research before they go to a restaurant and understand what this restaurant does well and what they don't specialize in. And so I think if you're looking for a vegetarian burger at a place that does not have them, maybe you pick the wrong spot. Right. Like you go into a restaurant thinking of what you want to eat instead of what they're actually offering you. Yeah. Not everything is customizable. There were also a few things on here about the bill. Like when you're going out with friends that I thought were kind of interesting. I hadn't really heard these rules before, but for group dinners with friends, always split the bill evenly. I think absolutely. Yes. I love this. And if you're the person who orders half of a salad and shares it with the person across from you and then doesn't order any drinks, don't go eat with the group. <laughs> so, um, and also I liked this one. If you're drinking and I'm not, offer to pay the entire tip. And I assume that means drinking alcohol because that's expensive. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that if you're going to split the bill evenly, everybody's going to know it's not exactly even. So then be the person who realizes that you got something extra. Or just say, hey, I've got cash for the tip. So everybody just leave the exact same amount. I'm going to leave cash on the table. There are ways to split the bill that make people comfortable. Also, um, I tend to be the person in my group who likes to pick the spot or is asked to pick the spot since, you know, we all write about food. Being the spot picker is really important because you know your audience. So like, who are you going with? Is everybody cool spending $100 a person or is that too much of a reach? Do you have people in the group who like to drink wine? Do you have people who are cocktail people? Picking the right place for a group has just as much to do with then how the splitting of the check goes. I'm also, I'm an advocate for just putting it on one card and sorting it out after. Having been a server it was always great when groups would handle it that way too. With Venmo and things, it's so easy to just do that. Just throw one card down, sort it out between yourselves how you want to sort it out after the fact. That's a great yeah. point, Claire. That's even better than splitting it actually because then if you do have somebody who got half of a salad, you can just get all those credit card points or whoever's the person taking the bill. Yeah. Or if you're the person who wanted to split a bottle of wine with one other person, you feel like you can do so without increasing everyone else's part of the bill. Yeah. And that's a good point about Venmo. Like it's so easy to like pay people back now. There's even the request function on Venmo. I was just on a bachelorette party. We split a lot of stuff and the person who paid just would send a Venmo request. It doesn't come across as rude when you get that text message. And then it's so super easy just to fulfill that request right then. I went to a different city with 10 people I didn't know. And there was like no difficulty or even a lot of discussion about how stuff was paid for. It's the first time it's ever happened and it was because of Venmo. And also there is a Venmo item on this list that says Venmo's remind button is too aggressive. Text them instead. <laughs> I didn't I don't think I even knew that there is a remind button. And I think the remind button is different than request. I think request is the first time out. Remind maybe now you're needling. Okay, so here's one that involves some math. Number 59 is the correct number of slices of pizza to order for a group of X people is 2x plus X divided by three. Look, this is why this list went out the door for so many people. It's items like this where you're like, first of all, don't make me math that. But second yeah, of all, no. there are parts of this list that just feel really stupid. And this is one of them. I feel like the correct number is however many numbers of pizza each person wants to eat. And then you add that up. Too simple, Claire. You didn't New York that quite enough. 
There's one that says don't go into a phone vortex at dinner. Yeah. And that one was a big yes for me. It ties in to my issue with restaurant QR code menus, which we've talked about before. I get why people still use them at restaurants. It's a lot more sanitary. But it just is an invitation for people to start off their meals with their heads in their phones. I agree. Also, there was this other one that I've never been to a party like this, but let me know if you guys have. If you put out bowls of cigarettes at a party, you have to let people smoke inside. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. No, that has New York written all over it. Also, no to smoking inside. <laughs> bowl of cigarettes or no bowl of cigarettes. No smoking inside, yeah. period. Okay, so under the tipping section, I thought this was interesting and pretty reflective of what Claire wrote for us a few weeks ago. The new tipping rules. At restaurants, the previous range of socially acceptable and ethically expected tips was 15 to 20 percent. Now it's 20 to 25. At coffee shops, coffee carts, cafes, and bodegas, tip at least 20 percent. Which is much higher than what I was told from restaurant workers here in Dallas. So maybe that's just a big difference between New York and Dallas. If your order is only coffee, you may tip $1. If you're buying an item that involves no preparation, you're just being handed something, you can do a smaller amount. When picking up takeout at a restaurant, you must tip at least 10% is what this story says. And I think that's kind of what yours said as well, Claire. Yeah. And at a bar, tip at least $1 per drink if you're getting a beer and 20% for a cocktail. I guess they're trying to say that you made a cocktail versus you opened a beer. I, it's 20% at bars, period. Okay. So Sarah, as we get closer to Valentine's Day, I know you had a certain dish you wanted to talk about. Yes. We started making marry me chicken in my house. This has been all over the internet in the last couple of months. It is not a new dish. It is not full of ingredients that you've never heard of or cooked with. It is new to my house and I love it so much. So we made marry me chicken a lot in December, but now it's Valentine's Day. And so anybody who needs a really nicely named dish to make their sweetheart, although be careful, it's called marry me chicken. So if you're not looking for him or her to marry you, you know, you're going to have to say the name, but marry me chicken is easy to make. It is basically a chicken dish with heavy cream, chicken stock, some Parmesan cheese and sun-dried tomatoes. And you make a beautiful thickish broth and you cook the chicken in that sauce and then you serve it in like a low pasta bowl with some cheese over top. We've also added some mushrooms. We've added spinach. We've added whatever seemed to be in the fridge at the time. It's hard to mess up and it just is a beautiful, delicious dish. So if anybody needs a Valentine's idea, Marry Me Chicken is a great one to make at home. Does it use like a whole chicken or chicken quarters or can it be boneless, skinless chicken? We do boneless, skinless at my house, chicken breasts, but mm -hmm. uh, you could probably use whatever you have as long as you, if you got some in your freezer and can let it thaw in time. This is one of the dishes that is just based on the sauce. You could probably also put something other than chicken in it. Yeah. Now that I say that, we've done this with portobello mushrooms because my brother's vegetarian. Same thing, super delicious. And that creamy broth, which we use vegetable stock instead of chicken, also turned out really nice. Okay. And so moving on, we recently had a story about a new sandwich that has made its debut in Dallas, and it's called the Chopped Cheese. Writer Kevin Gray wrote about it actually after he came on our podcast and told us about it. And we were like, what is that? He says, I will have to go find some in Dallas for you. So he found some at some pop-ups and at Shug's Bagels. And I just recommend that everyone go to dallasnews.com slash food and read about it because Kevin said he got a lot of emails and texts from New York transplants who were excited about it and also skeptical. You can try it and see for yourself. All right. Thanks, guys. Stick around. We're going to talk to Chef Dean Fearing. That's right after this. 
Central Market is really into food. Like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make-every-recipe-in-the-cookbook foodie or a my-favorite-recipe-is-reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back. Sarah Blaskovich recently sat down with Chef Dean Fearing, and he told us some crazy celebrity stories and more. Hi, Chef. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, for anybody who hasn't tried your food, you're the chef owner of Fearing's at the Ritz-Carlton in Dallas, also one of the godfathers of Southwestern cuisine in Texas. And soon we're going to talk about your long history serving diners in Dallas. But first, because it's on the mind, I want to go to Valentine's Day. This is next week, and many of our listeners are still considering where to eat. So what is Fearing's doing this Valentine's Day, and what are things that you do to try to make Make this holiday special. We're doing a special menu just for the weekend because Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. So we have a whole weekend of people coming in to celebrate. So we have a three course menu, all special. It's actually a four course because we're doing a chip and dip uh, with a little caviar and crispy potato chip that starts off the meal so well. That sounds delicious. And what do you do for a main? Do people pick their mains? No, we have what we call the Fairing Wellington. Mm -hmm. It is an eight ounce filet that is in a boulevard. So it's our version of a Wellington. Usually a Wellington is wrapped with pastry, but we're doing a boulevard that has the duck cell, which is a mushroom duck cell, little cream spinach, and then the filet, and then a ton of truffles with what we call a perigodine sauce, which is a truffle uh, red wine sauce. And then, of course, a foie gras pate on top. So it's very decadent, but I think it's appropriate for Valentine's. That does sound decadent. Are you in the restaurant on Valentine's Day and on the weekend before and after? You're not just like going and having a romantic dinner alone on that day. No, I don't think I've ever been off Valentine's Day so in my whole <laughs> career. So I will be there. I guess that's just part of it. I mean, it's, it's a busy day for us. So I want to be there. Okay, now one of the reasons that the podcast exists is so that we can meet the people behind the restaurants in Dallas and explore whether Dallas can be a world-class food city. And I think we've seen so much happen even in the last couple of years to prove that Dallas is a much more exciting place to eat than it ever has been before. How have you watched the culinary scene change over the decades that you've been here? Well, I started with Stephen Pyle's, a type of cuisine that we now call Southwest cuisine. And When I first moved to the city in 1979 as a young cook, Dallas was a French restaurant town. Every corner had a French restaurant. So I was the first person in Dallas to open an American restaurant. That was Agnews in 1981, believe it or not. And I was up against all of these French restaurants. And in fact, the French chefs at that time said, good luck, you know, you're going to shut down. But in five weeks, we had five star from your newspaper. So that really launched my career as an innovator, as a rebel, as doing something new. And I think it was probably nine months later that Stephen opened up Bruce Street Cafe. 
So, you know, the two of us then bonded together because there was only two of us. Uh Everybody else was pretty much French at that time or in a French restaurant. I think that was the start of Dallas into the American restaurant, into a regional restaurant scene. And then we started to see other young chefs starting to open up their own places. And I think that's 42 years that I've been a chef in Dallas. I've seen restaurants come and go. I've seen promising chefs that I thought were going to be an icon in Dallas. No, they didn't make it. But then I've seen a lot of chefs that are icons. And a lot of people worked under me or under Stephen and then branched off and started opening their own places. So I think that is what I love about Dallas is the fact that I said years back, we need more neighborhood restaurants. And that developed. And I think that alone carried us into being a city that's more like New York and Chicago because of the fact that not all restaurants are in the city. We have great restaurants all over the Metroplex. Yeah. And credit goes to Fearings as well, Chef. You've been around, is it 15 years? 15 years, yes. Yes. I mean, that's an incredible amount of years. I'll say it didn't surprise me. As one of Dallas's best known chefs, you put your name on a restaurant in one of the finest buildings, you know, that was built 15 years ago. Not surprising to me that it's still around, honestly. But what do you think brings something like Fearings some sticking power? Well, the fact that we're consistent. I think me working the floor in the sense and saying hello to people is very unique. There's not a lot of restaurants that have that personality. 15 years ago, I opened up and I told my chefs, I said, I'm going to do this differently than I did at the mansion. And at the mansion, I was there for 26 years as the chef. Oh, wow. Then to have my own restaurant, uh, I said, you know, I'm going to do things a little differently. I think it's personality forward. I think it's great food. I think it's a polished service. But beyond everything at Fairings, I would hope that our personality shines forward from our bartenders to our host. Our wait staff is one of the best in town because they shine with great personality. Um, now, I know you're not uh, much of a name dropper, but you've met tons of people. You've cooked with and for a lot of famous folks. Do you have any stories about a person or two who you think was really special? Well, you know, I've never been gun shy out in the restaurant until I met Mick Jagger. And <gasps> when the Stones were staying at the mansion and they would stay for two weeks at a time and then they would just zip out and go to Houston and do a show and then come back. They set up camp, so to speak, at the mansion. So Jerry Hall and Mick Jagger were going to come in for dinner. But Mick Jagger said, I'm wearing jeans. And at that time, we didn't allow jeans. This was a button-up, you know, tie and coat restaurant at that time. Wayne Broadwell was the maitre d'. And I, I said, Wayne, can I go out to the table and tell them about the features for the night? And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I I come out, I'm, you know, real proud of what we were serving that night. And I get to the table and I look at Mick Jagger and I tell you, I couldn't speak. I looked at him and all of a sudden my mind went blank because I'm a huge Stones fan. And 
holy moly. So I get to the table and my brain is saying, you better say something stupid because you are, <laughs> this looks really bad. And then finally, <laughs> Mick Jagger goes, yes, chef, is there something you want to tell us? And I was like, yes, we have a, we have a, rabbit, <laughs> we have a rabbit appetizer and we have a steak from Texas. There are specials. And I left and I was <laughs> so I was so mad at myself. I was like, here's my opportunity. And I was so scared. I couldn't believe it. And I've never been scared with anybody. Oh, that's so good. But do you remember what he ate? You know what? I can't remember exactly what he ate, but I remember what Elton John ate. He okay. Ate, he ate the pheasant. And funny story, if we got time on this. I want to well, hear about Elton John. There's time. So Elton John comes in. And he did the same thing. He would stay for two weeks and then they would shoot out and do all the concerts around Dallas. So he was coming in that night. Another dilemma. He was going to wear his cap for a while. He wore that kind of fur cap. And of course, the management at that time was like, uh, no, we can't allow Elton John to come in with that. He'll have to take that off. Oh, my God. I was like, no, 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 no. We got Mick Jagger in with the jeans, okay? We're going to let Elton wear whatever he wants. And so he comes in. He's got his little fur cap on. And he has the pheasant that night. And he calls me out. He goes, let, let me talk to the chef. He goes, you know, I've been all over the world and I love pheasant. And he says, this is the best pheasant I've ever had. I was like, well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I went back to the kitchen. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Unbelievable. So now we go forward to when Elton John was playing at the American Airlines Theater for his ongoing farewell tour. And my wife, Wanda, works with Cinemark Theater. So Paramount, they were getting ready to do Rocket Man. So they had great seats for us. And they said, hey, we got a surprise. We're going back and talk to Elton John in the green room after the show's over. And we go back and we're the only ones there. And it was like, wow, this is like unbelievable. And I told the troop I was with, I said, listen, I got this great story. You know, when he comes up and talks to us, I'm going to say, do you remember the pheasant at the mansion? Because you said it was the best you've ever had. And they were like, wow, wow, what a story. And I said, you know, that'll engage him in a conversation. So we go into his green room and it's just like you would expect. He's got cases of just glasses, cases of just jewelry. He's got racks of all these clothes. I mean, it's unbelievable. And we're the only ones there. And he's sitting down and he looks exhausted. He just finished the show. We, you know, we all said, hey, great show, great show. And he stands up and he starts to shake hands with everybody. Uh, everyone's saying hello. And he's coming up to me and I, I go, uh, Elton, Many years back, you stayed at the mansion on Turtle Creek and you had the pheasant and you really enjoyed it. And I was the chef at the time. And he looks up at me and he goes, oh, is that so? And he moves. <laughs> <laughs> so my big moment. And so we get out of the green room. Of course, I'm being razzed to death. Everyone's like, yeah. oh, so much for the big conversation you're going to have with John. <laughs> 
Yeah, you thought he was going to like wrap his arms around you, your best buds. <laughs> he can't wait for you to be his private chef. Oh, man. All right, oh, one that's... more. I got one more. John Travolta okay. comes in. and Also to the mansion? This was at the mansion, too. And he was going to have, I forget which movie he was doing, but they were promoting it. And he was going to have a big press lunch. So someone comes back and says, hey, John Travolta wants to talk to you. I'm like, holy moly. So I go out and there's John. And it's like, wow, John Travolta. And he goes, we're going to do this press lunch. I said, yeah, no, I know. He says, I want a big platter of fried chicken. I was like, sure. And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, big platter of fried chicken. And I want all the trimmings. I want gravy. I want green beans. I want mashed potatoes. I want biscuits. I was like, John, whatever you want, we're going to get it to you. And I run back to the kitchen. I was like, yikes. <laughs> we got to get fry some chicken. We, so we're all manic. Just, I'm telling you, it is, <laughs> it is just mayhem in that kitchen. And he loved it. In fact, he was like, chef, chef, here, sit down with me. Turned out to be the nicest guy ever. So personal. And out of everybody I met, from Anthony Hopkins to ACDC to Sammy Hagar, I mean, the list goes on and on. And Fearings has had a huge amount of people. And I started to do plates where people that came in, dignitaries, rock stars, actors, whoever, and I have them sign a plate. I got one more story. So it's the Jerry Seinfeld story. So Jerry Seinfeld comes into Fearings. He's on tour. And I come out like I usually do. I said, what would you like to eat tonight? And he goes, you know what? I feel like a steak. And I said, great. We got all these Texas steaks. We got a bar in. He goes, great. I want a strip. And I said, great. How would you like it? Medium rare. And I said, what would you like with it? He says, I want anything but asparagus. And I said, Jerry, mm-hmm. if you don't want asparagus, you're not getting asparagus. So the food comes out. And then I find out my crew put asparagus on his plate. No. <laughs> so I come over and I said, how's everything? He says, you mean, how's the asparagus that I didn't want? And I was <laughs> like, oh, Lord. I said, let me take that. So I, I change his plate around, get the asparagus off. And then, but he's good. He's good. He's cutting up. And I throw out some desserts. And, and I said, Jerry, you know, I have this custom thing I do here. When people come in, they sign a plate. He goes, oh, I'd love to sign a plate. So I give him the plate, give him the magic marker, and he's signing it. And it says, 2D, more asparagus. Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, and he cracks up. He's just yeah. laughing. He said, put that on your wall. I'm like, believe me, it's cool. Believe me, I will. Those are incredible stories. I feel like you've met a hundred times more famous people than any of the rest of us has. We should do this again because I haven't even got into the rock stars. <gasps> yes. I think this is a teaser for anybody who's listening. We're going to hear more about rock stars next time we talk to Dean Faring. I love this. Okay. So when you're not in your restaurant, which I know is so much, can you tell us where you like to eat? You know, Nick Batabitis has been a great friend, great chef. Yeah. Uh, I remember Nick when he first came to the mansion, green as a stick, and watched him develop to the person he is today. 
So I love to eat at Nick's restaurant just because of the fact that we have a great time when we meet up with each other. Uh, constantly trying new restaurants. And that is a process in itself. There's so many new restaurants. And, you know, of course, I want to see what's going on with all the new restaurants. So that's a job in itself just to keep going from the new Mexican restaurants to the new neighborhood restaurants to whatever. Yeah, we had a big time last year, especially with restaurant openings. It was pretty wild to watch. Okay, one more question for you, Chef. We have been following your son's battle with an aggressive form of leukemia. I'm so sorry to hear that he has been sick. Campbell Fearing has been an inspiration to a lot of people in Dallas. It is really special to watch his journey. He gives Instagram updates. And this is a strong young man who is looking for a blood stem cell donor, which could save his life. So how's Campbell doing, Chef? And how are you doing? Campbell's doing great. Uh, he will have to, at the end of this week, go back for another round of chemo, and then he'll start his process for blood marrow transplant. And I have to tell you, thank you, Dallas, for your support to Campbell, to DKMS.org. That is an amazing leukemia foundation that is helping not just Campbell, but helping a lot of people help to find donors. The leukemia bank is low in the United States, and we need more awareness. I mean, Sarah, I knew nothing about leukemia because I never knew anybody who had leukemia. So when out of the blue, Campbell was diagnosed with acute AML leukemia, wow, it was like, what happened? And he's 23 years old. How does a 23-year-old get leukemia? And the doctor answered, bad luck. And that's how it is. Yeah. It just comes out of the blue. There's 15,000 people in the United States that are looking for a donor. So I really need to pledge for everybody to be more aware about giving to the leukemia bank. And that's dkms.org. Register. They'll send you a swab. It's easy, right into the mouth. You send it back and you are part of the donor bank. And that's what we need, more donors. And has Campbell found his donor yet? We're still looking. They want to find the closest to 100%. Mm -hmm. His brother is 50%. And his brother could be a donor. But nowadays, they want to find somebody in the same age bracket, same height, same weight. I mean, it's amazing how this whole science has worked for being a transplant patient. Yeah. And for anybody listening, I learned when I was writing a story about Campbell's journey that being the donor is also much less invasive than it used to be. So if someone is a match for Campbell or for someone else... It's going in and giving basically kind of like giving blood or giving platelets. It's not surgery. You don't leave with one fewer organ. Joining as a donor, to your point, Chef, is easy and it really could save somebody's life. But it also the sacrifice from the donor is not huge. And it's not hard for Campbell. It's stem cell. So all they do is they take the donor's stem cell and put it into Campbell, that's how easy it is. And it's not scary. 
Thank you, Chef. This is an important update for your family, and we're really thinking about Campbell. Thanks for helping get the word out. It is so clear that from what you've done over your so many years here in Dallas Dining, and of course, all the incredible people that you've met, people really care about you and your family and your food. Um, And so that extends certainly to your son, Campbell, too. We're thinking about him. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be on the show and yak it up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, you got to come back. You'll come back and talk with us again, right? Yeah, wait. Love it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk about our pantry staples and our go-to foods in a crisis. That's right after this. Hey, listeners. This is Christopher Wynn. I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News. And that, thankfully, includes the food team that you're listening to right now. What I love about this beat is that food stories are people stories. Restaurants say a lot about who we are, our culture, and the health and well-being of our communities. If you want to help continue supporting this good work, it's easy. Just subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and become a member. You'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com slash listen. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all survived Ice Mageddon 2023 safely. The food team was hunkered down with our kids at home and trying to cobble together meals all week. It actually made me think of what we eat when in crisis, either going through our pantry staples or really finding foods that provide us comfort. And so, Claire, I know you kind of had a, a hard time. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was stuck home alone with my toddler Um, Same boat a lot of people were in. School was closed all week. But thankfully, I I was prepped. I had groceries. But by Friday, I mean, things were running pretty slim. Had one or two boxes of Annie's mac and cheese that came to the rescue. But it really made me thankful for all of the beans that I have in my pantry, especially cannellini beans. Those are my go-to. Yep. They were kind of the hero of this past week for me. What did you do? What did you eat? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was sort of like it was mostly snacks and then those ran out and then I had to actually make meals. So (laughs) I really relied on beans also. There's this one dish I make that is just Cuban black beans and rice. And you really Mm. don't need, even if you don't have any onions or garlic, you can use garlic powder and onion powder, you know, if you're really super desperate. But it's really just simmering black beans with onions, garlic, oregano, cumin, and some red wine vinegar. And then you just serve that over rice. Canned beans or do you use dried black beans and soak them? Yeah, I always use canned beans for that one. It's just faster. I never have the foresight to soak them ahead of time. Nobody does. (laughs) So yeah, no. So one of my go-tos also that I leaned on this past week is cooking a grain blend. I always have grain blends in my pantry. There's one that I love from Trader Joe's. It's their harvest grain blend. So it has like pearl couscous, orzo, red quinoa, and split lentils. I cook that according to the package. So it's you're really just boiling it with water and simmering it covered. But I add in a bouillon cube and a pot of butter before I cover it to cook and a bay leaf. And then I usually add in a bit more water than it calls for. And then when it's done, you kind of have it's a little bit soupy. And that's when I throw in a bunch of grated, really finely grated Parmesan. Or what I did this past week, I didn't have any Parmesan. So I used crumbled goat cheese. And so it's like this creamy, almost risotto-like grains that are way easier to make and way faster to make than a risotto. And my toddler loved it. It was a hit. And it's super variable. You can put a protein on it or put a fried egg on it. It's a workhorse for me. That's amazing. And it's also very, seems very nutritious. I also leaned into the box mac and cheese, but I had one from Whole Foods. It was like the shells and cheese with the actual like sauce. And then I had some ground 
beef in the fridge. So I was like, I think I'm just going to make like a cheeseburger pasta. So I cooked the ground beef. Um, I added in a little tomato sauce, sauteed with onions and garlic, and then mixed it in with the mac and cheese and the shells and cheese. Yes, I made hamburger helper. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think you're describing hamburger helper. (laughs) It was so good, though. (laughs) And it was sort of that mix of like the pantry staple and comfort food. Because sometimes you look in your pantry and you're like, I don't want to eat any of this. To me, like this past week was a reminder of how good it is to have pantry recipes in your arsenal and also vegetarian recipes because usually that will be the thing that you're going to run out of first right is protein fresh protein and so dried pastas dried grains canned beans dried beans if you can plan ahead <laughs> right um, those things are key it's so funny too to see i don't know did you go to the store on monday before the storm hit no i did not go then I went and it was so funny to see what people were getting ahead of the ice storm. There were a lot of canned Rotel tomatoes. The shelf was like wiped clean. And I wanted like, what are people using this for? I just want to know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe like chilies or something. I saw like one guy who had beer and like Twinkies and that (laughs) that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Usually it's a lot of alcohol and toilet paper. I feel like people stock up on toilet paper ever since the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Trauma from not being able to get toilet paper for so long. It was definitely sort of a flashback to March 2020 combined with the ice storm of later. You know, like we were all just stuck at home and could not get anywhere. But at least we had electricity. I don't think there were as many people without um, electricity. Right. We didn't get hit like Austin. I think people are more prepared now for these kinds of events of being stuck at home and having to get creative with food if you can't have food delivered or can't go out to eat. I I wonder what most people do lean on. I'm assuming people were not making sourdough this past week. I feel like that has, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that phase is collectively over. Yeah. Um, Also pasta for me. I mean, that's always, I mean, that's a go-to not in times of crisis. I also really lean on chickpeas heavily. I know we talked about beans, but Mm. chickpeas specifically, I really like to mix them in soups. I even do like a lot of salads. I do one with canned chickpeas, jarred artichokes, and a can of tuna. And then you can add lemon juice, olive oil, some goat cheese if you want to, or feta, parsley. But that's a go-to lunch for me. And like, I always have jarred artichokes in my pantry. I also really love those microwavable rice packets and grain packets that you can just Mm -hmm. split open and heat up in the microwave. I also always keep, always, always, always have frozen cubes of minced garlic basil and ginger. They sell them at most all big grocery stores have them in the frozen section. They come in little trays, like their own individual little cubes. So you can pop them out and add them to dishes as you need them. Those are a godsend for me all the time because often I just don't really have the time to stand there and mince garlic. Or sometimes I'll use these basil cubes. Like this past week I had some ground meat and was going to make meatballs and I didn't have fresh basil and I couldn't go out to the store. So I used one of those cubes and it did the trick. So those for me are a way to take pantry staples that can be sad and turn them into a great meal without having to go to the grocery store. Claire, I know the freezer is actually a big thing for you and that you always have a stocked freezer. What are some of your go-tos there? 
One thing I do always have going in my freezer is I will take scraps from vegetables, like ends of carrots and celery and things like that, or like the rinds of Parmesan and put them in a container in my freezer and keep them frozen until I can get to them to make a stock. So I always have something on hand to make a quick stock if I need to. And then some not so glamorous things, but things that I love, like a good frozen orange chicken. I keep a lot of frozen green peas. Mm-hmm. I like to throw those into dishes, but I kind of need to up my freezer game. It's a little sad right now. There's another thing I get at Sprouts, the frozen pork dumplings. And oh, yeah. those are great for a quick meal with like one of those rice packets, some banchan sauce on top. You can like saute them or you can even use them in soups, but they're really delicious and they're good quality. I've tasted some other frozen dumplings that are kind of like, no. Another thing I got is the frozen pierogies. They come, you know, stuffed with like potato and cheese, onion, and they're great in the air fryer and they become oh, kind of yeah. crispy and you can dip them in some sour cream or something like that. And those are another good, comforting, kid-friendly freezer go-to. So like this is how yeah. I eat most of the week. Yeah. <laughs> no shame. Yeah. No shame. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. We also want to hear from you, so share your food thoughts, favorite restaurants, or tasty recipes with us at eatdrinkatdallasnews.com. The show is produced by Julie Fisk. To stay up to date on every episode of the show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Eat, Drink, DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. <laughs>